Now be seated and find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and be finding verse 12. As we study this letter, the Apostle Paul has given much theology related to um, this young church who needs to know Christ and, and be that light of the world in their, their uh, ungodly city of Thessalonica. And as he concludes this letter, it's such an interesting way that he does it in that he gives these bullet points, very brief, quick, um, almost like shooting from a, a machine gun, uh, these uh, quick, brief fire of biblical practical application. And as I read this, I entitled this message, Live Like This. How ought we to live as Christians based on the theology he's given us? Well, he says, here's how you ought to live. Do this, 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 and this. And he gives us many of them. And I'm going to uh, give us a few from, uh, I guess, probably verses 12 through 18 this morning. And as I, as I looked at this, I think no matter who showed up this morning, every one of us can at least take one of these points and apply it to our lives today. I don't know which point that's going to be for you, and it might be multiple points for you. But I would imagine um, everybody listening can take at least one of these and say, I really need to think about this this morning. I really need to pray about this. I really need to work on this in my own life. Um, I know for me there are a couple this week that stood out to me that I need to think about for myself. And so as I go through, uh, think about this, think about this, this title, which is Live Like This, as we read 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 18. If you found verse 12, say word. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their works' sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. If you have those notes there before you this morning, did we get notes this morning? They're on the back if you need one. You'll see three main points that we're going to dive off into, and so let's, let's begin there. Number one, the first thing I see in verses 12 and 13 is the apostle tells the church to respect biblical leadership. He says, we beseech you, which means we urge you, we beg you, we plead with you, brothers, which is the church, to know them which labor among you, speaking of those elders which they had set up there in the church, those leaders they had put in place and that have been affirmed as the leaders of the church in Thessalonica. And no doubt, um, it probably didn't take long for this young church and their leadership to have certain issues. Um, one issue that I think is probably here based on the context of what we've seen in chapters 4 and 5 is that there are probably some people here saying, well, Christ is going to return very soon, 
So let's just quit our jobs and quit serving and quit doing things and just wait for him to return. Based on the context, I think that might be a possible explanation. And he, he says to these, this church, these leaders among you are admonishing you, encouraging you, working among you to encourage you to keep serving God until he returns, right? To keep living, to keep serving. We're not like, I've read stories of some of these end times cults where people will sell all they have and give it to the leader and just sit, sit in a small community and wait for some second coming of some type. We're not like that, are we? We continue to live and work and serve until he does return. And so maybe that's what happened there, and maybe, maybe the, the leaders, maybe the pastors and the leaders of the church there were saying, no, we have to serve God, we have to do this, we have to do that. And maybe there were some people going, no, he's coming back pretty soon, so I'm just going to hang out and wait. Maybe that's one possible case. Maybe there were some other disagreements related to basic theology, and surely there were. There were. And so Paul says, esteem, respect these leaders among you as they seek to lead you. I see biblical church leadership as a three-way street. Um, the first road on that street, the first part of that street is, is, is God, right? God is the one who calls his church. He's the one who calls his pastors, his elders, his leaders, and puts them in place. And he's the most important part of any uh, street, right? That God ordains it and guides it. The second part, I would say, is, is that elder pastor who submits to God's call in his life and accepts the calling of the church to serve. And that elder is responsible, right, to work hard and study, to prepare and present sermons and Bible studies and to care for the church and generally lead and oversee the church. That elder is uh, affirmed by the church. And so there's God, there's the elder, and there's the church. The church calls, just like when I came here, right, the church. I didn't just come and say, I'm going to be the pastor. I actually said, I'm not going to be the pastor. <laughs> and then later on, the church called, right, and said, we, we want you to be the pastor. And then I accepted and was affirmed by the church. This concept of respecting biblical leadership has been abused on all sides. I've seen it abused on the side of the pastor. I've had pastors in the past, in my own experience, who led their church like a dictator, who said, what I say goes no matter what. That's unbiblical. I've had pastors who would have that my way or the highway mentality way too often. And so I've seen pastors abuse this privilege of eldership. And I've also seen churches abuse the pastor. When they see the pastor as someone they just hired or as an employee they can boss around or someone they can threaten if things don't go their way. I've seen that way too many times in my 20 years of ministry. And so there's so many stories, and I'm sure there were stories back then, where either the pastors or the church abused one another in a certain way. But when this is done right, when this is done right, the way the Bible tells us to do it, from the pastor's point of view as he loves and serves the church, and from the church's point of view as they love and serve, and, and as it says here, to esteem him highly in his work, as this happens from both sides, ultimately, the next thing you'll see there on the, the screen is ultimately the elders and the church work together for the glory of God, the good of the gospel, and the growth of the church. And that's our goal, right? That's what we all want from the, if, if a church member or a pastor does not want this, then what are we even doing, right? We all want to see God glorified in all we do. We want to see the gospel promoted in all we do. 
and we want to see the church grow in the way God would have it to grow. When I read this verse, I think, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with verse 13, honestly, as a pastor. I think if I was a church member only, I might see it differently, but as a pastor, um, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that phrase of esteeming the pastor highly because I felt in my life many times I've been treated differently in a bad way because I was the pastor. I had a conversation with Junior recently about this, and I just made the point, I like when people treat me like an actual human being, <laughs> you know, who has faults and has mistakes, and I think you all know that, but um, I, I don't like being put up on a pedestal in that way. Although I understand as a part of being a pastor, there are responsibilities and accountability to that. Um, I like for you to just talk to me like a regular person. Yeah, I enjoy those things. But the idea here is to respect and esteem that elder, encourage, support, and pray for him. And I read all these verses, by the way, in this final text here, not as suggestions, but as a command. And as we do this, and as the pastors do what they're supposed to do, and as the church does what they're supposed to do, look at verse 13, the last phrase, and you be at peace among yourselves. As this happens, there's a peace that overcomes the church. This word peace literally means to be joined together, something that once was separated. It's the opposite of discord, disharmony. It's the opposite of war. It, this, this type of peace leads to a freedom from disturbance and leads to a compelling sense of love amongst the people. Peace contrasts with strife. And this is so important for every church. How many of you have ever been to a church that is full of strife or conflict? How many of you have been to a church where one person can stir up the whole pot? You've seen that, right? We've all seen it. I could name some names from my previous churches. I won't do that. Uh, I won't say the name Sarah. I'm just kidding. That's just a joke. Just a joke. I won't say the name DC. Just a joke. That's not real. It's a, it's a different name. Why is this command so important, so necessary? Because the number one problem among Christians might be the problem of getting along together. We got a lot of problems. Lack of reading the word, lack of prayer, lack of church attendance, lack of this and that. But one of our major problems as a whole for Christians is the problem of getting along. If you don't believe me, think about this. How many churches are in Lowndes County? I, don't, I haven't looked that up, but it's a lot, right? And one reason there's so many, one reason there's many churches, sometimes it's because people go plant new churches, which is great. We support that, but... One reason is because these, this one church couldn't get along, right? And it became two churches. And then 20 years later, those two had issues, and they became four churches. And not in a way that's good where they spread the gospel, but in a way where they're just not getting along. And so the idea here is that as we do this part right, as the pastors lead appropriately as they should, as the church esteems or respects the elders, it should lead to a church of peace. And all of us know all of us have enough flesh in us, the sinful nature, that we could, with, with an act or words, hinder and hurt our very own church. But what we also know is, with love and patience and kindness and gentleness to one toward another, we can 
keep peace amongst ourselves and do what verse 13 says. And so our next main point is a big part of this living with peace. And so look at number two. We must encourage one another. All of us. We must encourage one another. Verse 14, now we exhort you, brethren. Again, see this. He says, we beseech you. We exhort you. We are calling you. And then he gives us a few things. He says, first, warn them that are unruly. At least four different groups of people here he talks about. The first are the unruly. This word unruly, I'll give you another word up on on your notes there. The word is the disorderly. Those who are out of order, out of line. Other ways this word is used in scripture is to mean those who are idle, lazy, or acting in defiance. This type of person in the church is a person who is who's out of step, they're going their own way. One person said this person is like a soldier who, is, uh, who breaks rank. Again, why might someone in Paul's day in this church be disorderly? Why might they be out of line? Maybe it's what I mentioned earlier. Maybe they thought the coming of Christ was so close that they stopped what they were doing and just sit and waited for Christ instead of serving. And maybe he's saying here, encourage, warn them that are unruly. If they're just sitting there not doing anything, we need to warn them to be doing something. And that falls on us as a church, right? And me as a pastor, when we have church members who are idle or unruly or disorderly, who are not doing anything, right? To say, hey, and we try to do this sometimes, right? Hey, get back in the church, right? Stay active in the church. We're here to help you. We're here to encourage you. But we can only do so much if you don't come and and be a part of what we're doing. Warn those. Again, these people that Paul's writing to needed to hear this. Some of these people needed to hear this. Some of these Christians that are committed Christians needed to hear this. Not to go out and bash their fellow church members, not to go out and make their church members feel terrible, but to go and tell them, hey, you have a, a, a daily conduct, you have a, a life conduct right now that you need to, that's, that's disapproving to God and you need to change it and get back in line with the truth of the church and the gospel. The scripture says in Galatians, that believers are to bear one another's burdens. It says in the book of Jude that when we help encourage those who are disorderly or unruly, it says we snatch them out of the fire. In 1 John, it says if we see a brother committing sin and ask God to give him life, then, then God can help him. I'm paraphrasing there. James says if anyone among you strays from the truth and you help turn him back, You've saved his soul from death. I'm I'm reminded also of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3, the watchman. The story there of this watchman whose job is to warn the people of impending danger. And so when Paul writes and says we are to admonish the unruly, that's talking to us, church, to say to us, who is it in your life that you can look at and say, hey, get in God's word, be about prayer, serve the people around you, Maybe you could take it a step further with someone you're closer with and say, hey, I've noticed you're lacking patience. Maybe we should ask God to give you more patience. I've noticed you're lacking kindness. Can we ask God to give you more kindness? That's to admonish one another. The second group of people that he talks about is, are the discouraged. The discouraged. And again in verse 14 he says, comfort the feeble-minded. When it says feeble-minded, that word means that they are faint-hearted, despondent, fretful, depressed, worried. They feel inadequate. They feel sad, fearful, or, or timid. They are simply discouraged. 
but not discouraged like, you know, one thing went wrong. It's more like a, a greater discouragement than that. It's like everything's going wrong. These are the people, based on this usage of this word, who maybe even are on the edge of giving up. That they don't, they're not able to accomplish the tasks before them. And these are people, he says, that we need to comfort, encourage, support. To come alongside someone in the church and say, I know you're tired. I know things are maybe not going the way you want them to go because of something in life. But I'm with you. We can make it. Have y'all seen those um, video clips of people running marathons? You ever seen those where someone gets like within distance of the finish line and they fall? And sometimes when you see that they fall and they're just done. And sometimes you'll see someone run up beside them, or another runner who's trying to beat their own time, right? They stop, and they'll pick them up and help them to the finish line. I feel like that's kind of what this is saying. Comfort the discouraged. Those who are fallen and may not be able to get up, how can we get beside them, pick them up, and help them to the finish line? As Christians, we're called to do that for our fellow Christians, fellow members of the church. So pray for each other, love each other, speak kindness to each other, share with each other, and give to each other if that is needed. So we see the disorderly, we see the discouraged. I could not find another D word, so we're going with the weak. The weak. Again, that's exactly what he says. Here he says, support the weak. Matthew Henry on this verse said, Some are not well able to perform their work, nor bear up under their burdens. Again, these people have burdens they just cannot bear. We should therefore support them, help them, and lift them up. He said, it is the grace of God indeed that must strengthen and support them. The grace of God must do it. But we should tell them of that grace. I love that phrase. love that part. Every one of us in here, as I look around, knows and trusts that when we go through a bad day, a bad week, a bad year, a bad moment of life, we all, I think, in here know God is there with us. He's for us. I think we all agree that. But sometimes when we're going through that tough stretch, we don't think about that because we're too busy focusing on the problem than the problem solver. That's why we come alongside the weak and say, hey, don't forget, he is with you. Don't forget, it's by his grace and his strength you're going to be able to make it through this thing you're going through. And I'm saying this not as a super Christian. I need this in my life. I need people to come alongside me and say, hey, don't forget. You preach it every week, but don't forget when things get hard, God has a plan in it. He has a purpose in it. He's going to turn it for good. We need to be this for one another. To Admonish the disorderly to comfort the discouraged and to help those who are weak or going through weak moments. And then look at the last part of verse 14. Be patient toward all men. My joke in my notes that I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to say it was, he didn't say women there, he said men. So I don't have to be patient with my wife. No, I'm kidding. That's the main person I have to try to be patient with. Patience. Would you agree with this? Patience is a supernatural attitude. That's tough, right? 
On our own, it's hard to be patient, most of us. But that's why patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. So the only way we can truly be patient in a way that's going to glorify God and edify others is patience that comes from the Spirit of God helping us. For most of us, we just are not able to do it. And throughout Scripture, particularly here in the New Testament, there are things that talk about patience being a, a key component to being Christ-like. In 1 Corinthians, he speaks of that. In 2 Timothy, it talks about patience characterizing God's servants and God's preachers, even in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So an impatient preacher uh, must work on that. Colossians 3 says we are to put on patience. In 1 Timothy, 1, 1 Timothy 6, it says patience should be continually pursued by all believers. When I think about patience here, I think about us having a, a not having a short temper. And some of us are like that. Some people are like that. A lot of us guys especially, right? We can have a really short temper. Things don't go our way. But the scripture says doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter what your temperament is. We are called as believers to be people of patience. This word picture here is someone who takes a while before they burst into flames. Patience can be hard. Patience can be hard when you live with someone who annoys you constantly. Not me, but some people. It's not the best amen I've gotten. Patience can be hard, listen, I should get a couple amens on this one. Patience can be hard when you work with someone or work for someone who's hard to work with and work for. Patience can be difficult when you spend time around people that try your patience. It can be difficult. Nonetheless, we must learn patience. All our new parents in here, in our church, we can testify, right? They're going to keep learning patience, aren't they? <laughs> the older these kids get. Married couples, we're going to keep working on patience probably until the day we die. But in the simplest terms, I like to think of patience like this. It's the willingness to keep trying over and over again. Patience is the willingness to keep trying over and over again. So when your child makes every wrong decision and goes down every wrong path and you want to give up on that child, you have patience toward them in their situation. And when your spouse is on your case, you're willing to keep trying over and over again. And if we care about someone whether it's family, friends, and church members, right? We will learn patience with one another. And so patience is this key component. Being patient with one another is a command of the Scripture for the church, and it's a key component to us if we're going to admonish the disorderly, help the discouraged, and the weak. Or the story of a a war in the late 1800s in Africa. And there was a man there who was convicted of a crime, a very unusual crime. 
he was found guilty of being a discourager. So here's what happened. They're having this battle, and he was basically a traitor. And so he went up and down his own people, down their line of fighters, and was doing everything he could to discourage them. And so he would walk up to his own fighters and say, their weapons are stronger than our weapons. They have more people than we have. We're outnumbered. You might as well give up. We have no chance. It's pretty discouraging, right? That would be like if I showed up on Sunday and said, you know what, guys? We're not going to do any good here. I don't know why we keep showing up, right? That'd be discouraging. Be like, why should I even fight? Why should I even care? That'd be like John Addison going out to the football game before the first quarter and saying, guys, we have no shot here. Let's just, you know, have fun, no shot. He would never say that. Even if he knows it deep down, he would never say that. As a coach myself, I know that. You just lied to him, right? Hey, we got this. We can do this. I've been there this week. He went down the line saying, we're never going to beat this army. And they said he was such an influence on the people. And by the way, he had his own weapon. He didn't even use it to fight. He was using a different weapon for the enemy called discouragement. And he was actually tried and found guilty, convicted of discouraging, being a discourager. Do you all know any people that are Debbie Downers? That every conversation you have, they can bring it down quickly. Don't point at your spouse. But I know people like this, and I try to have very short conversations with them because I don't want to be depressed about their conversation. So discouragement can be contagious. But so can encouragement. It can be a powerful thing. Some, you don't even know, sometimes you might give one positive, encouraging word to somebody, and that might last them a week. There have been Sundays, there was one a year ago probably, I was not even to New Salem yet, driving and thought, that was my worst sermon ever. And before I turned on the next road, I got a text from somebody who rarely ever texts me saying, that was your best sermon ever. I'm like, wow. And that one text encouraged me for the next week, right? You don't ever know what one word or what kind of gesture can do for somebody. Because here's the truth. We look great this morning. Everybody looks great. We have smiles on our faces for the most part. But we still don't know what each other's going through all the time, right? There are things people are going through we don't even know. And so may, may our default as fellow Christians, may our default be to encourage one another. There, are there times we have to have hard conversations? Yes. Are there are times we have to admonish and do these things we've already talked about? Yes, but may our default be encouragement. The last one here is revenge seekers. Verse 15, he says, As you do all these things, see that no one render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Now, we can all relate to this. How many of us have been hurt by somebody and we want to immediately hurt them back? What happens with my little girls if Aubrey smacks Alden in the head? What's Alden going to immediately do? Smack her back or bite. Or The small ones have learned to bite, which is a good strategy. <laughs> it's, it's effective. It leaves a mark, too. I have a cousin who's 
older than me, he still has a mark where I bit her when I was little. Did you know that? My cousin Melissa, she has a mark. So I left my mark. <laughs> our first thought, even as adults, it might not be to slap them back, but our first thought is to somehow get them back. It's something we say or just uh, gossiping about them or just having bitter feelings, something. How can I get them back? It might just be I'm just going to ignore them for the next two weeks. <laughs> I'm going to get them back. That's my go-to usually. It's a natural but sinful instinct to want to hurt those who've hurt us. Natural but sinful. And so in the Christian faith, in our faith, because of the things Christ said, we have a prohibition against retaliation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ talked about this. We see it even in the Old Testament. Moses, and by the way, the Old Testament, there's plenty of retribution for things that happen, right? But the old, and Moses said, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. Solomon, over and over again in the Proverbs, said things like this. He who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. He said, do not, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Proverbs 24, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your hearts be glad when he stumbles. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Scripture is clear. I'm not, I'm not saying, of course, don't defend yourself, right? If somebody comes in and hurt us, we're going to defend ourselves. But you know what I'm talking about here. When someone offends you or hurts you in this type of way, we're not to render evil for evil, but what's verse 15 say? Do that which is good. So instead of retaliating, true Christian kindness takes the high road, as we say. Oftentimes the high road is not well traveled. But may we seek to take the high road. Again, I'll quote Matthew Henry here. He says, In general, we must study to do what is our duty and pleasing to God in all circumstances. Whether men do us good or ill, whatever men do to us, we must do good to others. We must always endeavor to be beneficent or benevolent and instrumental to promote the welfare of others. My phrase here that I never that I say but it's hard to follow is always do the next right thing in your life at home work church wherever you go whatever happens I like to say to myself and again I don't always, I don't always do it but I say do the next right thing sometimes the hard part is figuring, figuring out what that next right thing is but seek to do the next right thing so encourage one another our final point is to encourage yourself. Find this in verses 16 through 18. And I, hes I hesitated to, to use this type, this wording here, but you know what I mean. I don't mean you do it without God, right? Only by Him can we do anything, and his, his grace, His strength, His help. But our sovereign Creator, who gives us every breath and enables us to do anything, He calls us to follow Him. And by following Him, we have to make decisions and do different things in life. 
And so here are a few commands, three, to help us encourage ourselves in the faith. And if we don't do these things, we're really going to struggle to do the first two points of my sermon. We're, gonna, we're going to struggle to encourage others if we can't even encourage ourselves. So quickly look at verse 16. Rejoice evermore. Encourage yourself with rejoicing. People should see joy in our lives. Some of us, if something good happens, we just explode with joy and everybody knows it. Some of us are more reserved and you, don't, you have to kind of just talk to that person to sense that joy. Um, I'm going to use Jacob as an illustration. I hope, I hope he doesn't mind. I don't think he minds. Jacob, for the last couple months, we've been talking and praying about him getting this new job he had interviewed for. And he found out this week he got the job. Been think, we were talking about it weekly pretty much, so I, and it's a, it's a good job for him and his family and at the best university in the country, and so I'm excited for him to get this new job. And he walks in this morning, because he, he didn't text me about it, he walked in this morning and said, hey, got the job. I was like, what, you got the job? And I was like, I was more excited than he was, right? And Nikki said he said the same thing to her, got the job, yeah. But I know from talking to him He's excited about it. He's joyful about it. He's thankful for it. But like some of us guys, we don't really hurrah too much. My point is still this. Whether you are that Christian who's obviously on fire and everybody sees your joy with your smile or you're that reserved Christian who they might need to talk to for a minute to kind of sense it, regardless of which one of those you might be, the Christian faith is a joyful one. And as a Christian, people should see our joy. They should see it. At, at, at some level, or at least in conversation. Listen to what happened in the scripture. Simon Peter was in prison for proclaiming Christ. And in Acts 5, 41, it says, as they, as they went on their way from the council, they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They rejoiced because they were persecuted. Listen to Matthew 5. Jesus says, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. He says, when that happens, when people insult you, persecute you, say evil things against you, he said, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Luke 6 account of that thing, he says, of that wording, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you and cast insults at you and spurn you, be glad, rejoice, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Writing from prison, Paul wrote in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, rejoice. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, we talked about this months ago. He said, you've received the word in much affliction and with joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and so on. In Romans 8, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So find joy even in suffering. 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For our, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. So find joy even in affliction. Encourage yourself with rejoicing, church. Number two, encourage yourself with praying. How about verse 17? Pray without ceasing. What does this mean? Well, I'll give you a couple things I think this means. 
I don't think this means that you have to be at the altar 24-7, right? We know that's not what it means. But I think a few things. First, it means we should be constantly depending on God. Pray without ceasing. To pray without ceasing means actively, consciously, in the Spirit of God as our help, depending on Him for all things. Thank you for waking me up this morning. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for this home. Thank you for this job. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my church. Thank you for this. Constantly praying to Him. Another thing I think it means, and probably most plainly, it means we should pray repeatedly and often. We should pray all the time. Again, not that we pray every single moment, but it's this. It's as I said a moment ago, our default should be to encourage one another. As a Christian, our default should be, God, help me, or dear God, or Heavenly Father. Our default state should be, when we go through something, the first thing we think is, God, help me. It's that default of going to Him first. It also means to not give up on prayer. To never come to a point in your life where you stop praying altogether. Although we can all admit there are seasons of life where maybe we pray more or less. But we should never get to the point where we say there's no use in praying. We should never get to that point, right? We should pray without ceasing. We should never cease. We should never stop. One old reading says, when you are weary in body and soul, cumbered with many a care, when work is claiming its strength-taking toll, make it a matter of prayer. And when you're discouraged, distraught, or dismayed, sinking almost in despair, remember there's one who will come to your aid if you'll make it a matter of prayer. And when you are lost in this world's tangled maze, when life seems a hopeless affair, direction will come for all your ways if you'll make it a matter of prayer. If you're going to encourage yourself, you need to do it with rejoicing, and you must do it with praying. Finally, verse 18, encourage yourself with thanking, or gratitude, however you want to write it, with thanking. Give thanks, verse 18, in everything, give thanks. The best Old Testament example of this I think of is Job who though he lost basically everything, he said, naked I come from the womb, naked I will return, but blessed be the name of the Lord. His perspective was one of thanks. How about David? David said in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David was intelligent about the Lord in his head, but he was encouraged about the Lord in his heart, knowing where praise was due, knowing where thanksgiving was due. Someone said, at all times, in every situation, under every circumstance, before, in, and after trials, in bright days of glee and dark nights of fear, we must be thankful. If you had to gauge yourself right now from 1 to 10 on how thankful you've been lately, 10 being most thankful, 1 being not thankful at all, Think about that. Where would you gauge your gratitude? Where would you gauge your thankfulness? I heard this illustration. Someone said gratitude is a thermometer. Now, of course, a thermometer doesn't 
help us. It just tells us what's wrong with us, right? You don't stick a thermometer in the freezer, get it cold, put it in your mouth, and it helps your fever, right? You, you just stick it in your mouth, and it tells you if you have fever. So someone said gratitude is a thermometer. In the same way, the presence or absence of gratitude in your dealings with God is one of the most reliable indicators of your spiritual health. So like that thermometer tells us what our temperature is, whether or not I'm being thankful tells me where I'm at oftentimes spiritually. Because what I've found is if I'm spending time grumbling and complaining, I'm probably not also being grateful. But if I'm spending time being grateful, that's going to curb some of my complaining and grumbling. So gratitude is a thermometer and, and continued. He said, it's also a medicine. It promotes your spiritual health. It's a medicine. Again, it, it keeps you focused on God. It keeps you focused on the things you should be focused on. We're, we're deciding, deciding to be thankful regardless of how you feel is a distinctly Christian attitude. When you wake up like, I don't want to go to work this morning, or I don't want to do this today, or I don't want to deal with this, but then you pause and say, Lord, help me. Lord, thank you for the opportunity. Gratitude. Because what does it say in verse 18? Give thanks, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It is God's will for us to give thanks. What does God want me to do this morning? He wants, us to be, he wants you to be thankful. He wants you to pray without ceasing. He wants you to be joyful. He wants you to encourage one another. He wants you to esteem leaders in the church. What does he want us to do? He wants us to live like this. Let's bow.